So last week, um, as Brent was finishing up quickly, <laughs> chapter six, he was running out of time. Um, it was, it's one of these things where the first verse of this chapter actually belongs to that chapter. It's one of those ones where the, the chapter break seemed to be in a weird spot. And uh, so he, he, Paul's concluding the thought on the topic that we studied last week. And he uses the word therefore, as he so often does, because he is careful to always bring us back to a point that he's made earlier to tie everything together and then move us forward again. It's like the old two steps forward, one step back kind of thing, where Paul takes us back briefly to solidify those things that he's been talking to us about so then we can go forward in our growth and understanding of the Lord. <clears throat> Paul refers to this therefore, um, in this instance, to the promises that had been unveiled at the end of the last chapter. It says, I will, walk, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So there's promises there that God says he will be our father, and that we'll be his sons and daughters, but there's also instructions <clears throat> where the onus is on us to remove ourselves from the entanglements of this world. <clears throat> he wants us to be separate from the unclean or worldly things, the things that would bind us to the old nature and cause us to fall into sin and out of God's perfect will for our lives. In verse 1, he says, we need to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So what is filthiness of the flesh and what is filthiness of the spirit? Well, filthiness of the flesh is kind of those easy things, those easy things to target. They're like sexual sins and drunkenness and other things that would affect the body. And they're far more easily identified. Sins of the spirit are more like things that affect the mind, like idol worship or vanity or pride, things that we can tend to keep hidden a little better much easier to lie to ourselves about those things and hide them from others. You know, you think back to the time of Jesus and, you know, he was dealing and talking to prostitutes, tax collectors, you know, those kind of people. It was easy. Their sin was just right out front. It was, it was open and there it was. And they knew they were sinners. There was no problem with identifying that type of sin. But, you know, the Pharisees, they had that, that kind of hidden kind of sin that was just, you know, it was all about them. It was just vanity and pride and things that they kept inside. Those are the things that, you know, are a lot harder to deal with. But on all of those things, we look around today and we see that sin is just glorified. Sin is something to be attained to almost, you know, these days. It's, everybody's got their own just personal choices and it's, you know, I decide what's best for me and this is my truth. But the actual truth is that it's just plain sin. Things that separate us from God. All sin is filthiness in the eyes of the Lord and these are the things that God is telling us that we need to remove ourselves from. Paul says much the same thing in his letter to the Romans. 
In Romans chapter 12, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now we know that we can't cleanse ourselves by our own efforts, but God gives us the tools by his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Yes, there needs to be a willful effort on our part to cooperate with the things that God is doing. We have to make that decision. Yes, we need to make that choice. But God provides the cleansing. It's not us that does the cleansing. God provides the way through. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, we need to do the confessing. We need to do that repentance part. We need to come not just like, oh, we just need to confess and it's all going to be better. No, we need to have that repentance, that metanoia, that change of mind that says, yes, we want to go a different direction. We want to do what God would have us to do, right? But it's God that does the cleansing. In John 17, 17, it says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So, I mean, he gives us his word. We know his word. And John 17 is an amazing chapter. It's Jesus' prayer. It could actually be called the real Lord's Prayer because it's the prayer that Jesus prayed for himself. He prayed it for him, his disciples, and he prayed it for believers for all time, from beginning to end. And it's so wonderful and beautiful to see the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ as he prays to the Father and the things that he asks the Father to do for those that would believe in him going forward. And you really need to read that chapter and become familiar with it because it just shows Jesus' heart with the Father when he talks to him about us. It's really neat. In Romans 8, 13 and 14, it says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You know, so it's one of those things where it says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And it's not that physical death. You know, it's not like, it's back in the Garden of Eden when, when Satan said to Eve, did God say you'll die? You're not going to die. Well, you know what? She didn't die physically that day, but she died spiritually that day. And that's the type of death that we face when we're separate from God, is that spiritual death. And those are the things that we need to come to him with and let him do the work in our life. God will never ask us to do something that he has not equipped us to accomplish. We need to make the decisions to do the things that God asks of us, but he will always supply what's required to get that work done. God says to Joshua in chapter 1, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. 
Be strong and of good courage. God was telling Joshua, I'm with you. It's my strength. You know, your, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. You know, we come to the Lord as broken vessels, but his strength in us is allowing us to move forward. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of the same thing when he exhorts the Hebrew believers in chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So we see the things that God requires of us, and we see how he equips us to fulfill those requirements. We also know that while we're in these earthly tents, these cracked vessels, we can't be fully complete. But I love the way that Paul explained to the Philippians that even he, Paul, understood that it's God who is at work in us until the day that we stand face to face with him in glory. But until that day comes, we are to go forward. He says in Philippians, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Paul knew he wasn't there yet. He says, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Like, isn't that cool? Christ Jesus lays hold of us. And then, you know, we need to try to lay hold of what it is he has for us. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press forward toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. That's the key, is knowing that we can't change what's already happened. We can't change history. It's history. It's done. It's over. But when we come to God in repentance and ask him to cleanse us, we can literally forget those things that are behind. God does. And he wants us to focus on where he wants us to go to go forward in what he has for us, what his perfect will and plan is for our lives. And we can go forward knowing that he will do that. So then we move on to verse two. Paul says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulations. He says, open your hearts to us. And he's actually referring back to the last chapter in verse 11 where he says, O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us but you're restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Paul is saying, we are speaking openly with you. We always have. He, he wants them to remember and think back on the transparency that they saw in Paul when he had been there, when he had lived among them, when he had taught them. He wanted to remind them that they, they had done 
wrong to no one, nor did they have, do anything that would have corrupted anyone. They didn't act deceitful, and they didn't cheat anybody. And he's saying these things not to be boastful or conceited. He's just trying to remind them of the truth, what they saw and they heard in Paul when he was with them the last time. He's saying he's not saying it there to condemn them. He just wants them to remember it and to not be deceived by the lies they were being told by the false teachers that were in Corinth trying to run down Paul in his ministry, saying, oh, well, he, he can't be that good. Look at all the trials he's gone through. The guy's, he's been shipwrecked three times for Pete's sake. You know, the guy's, you know, he's, he's not doing well. And that, you know, that was just such a lie. Paul reminds them that they were in his heart and he loved them. He said he would live and die together with them. They, he just had such a bond with them. And he wanted, to he wanted them to remember that even though his letter of correction to them had been harsh, he knew that what he had said, he'd said it out of love. So he says in the same breath, and he reminds them that he often is telling people about them and all the good things that God is doing in their lives. He had been worried because of not knowing how they received his letter. But now that he had reconnected with Titus, and discovered that the Corinthians had received his letter well, he was now comforted, and his concern had been replaced with exceeding joy. I love that the Greek word there for exceeding could be translated as to, to superabound. Paul was superabounding with joy. It was like he was jumping up and down. He was so happy, and he was so joyful in his spirit that the result of the letter had done what it was supposed to do, right? Even in the midst of the tribulations he'd been facing, Paul was now joyful knowing that they had received correction and they'd received it well and that the Corinthian believers were moving forward now in their walk with the Lord. In verse five and seven, he says, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul was just so happy, not just to see Titus. He'd been trying to find Titus. He, he, you know, he'd been looking for him, but it wasn't just because he wanted to see Titus. It was because he wanted to hear how the Corinthians had, had received the letter. It's so amazing, you know, how the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible. We know that God's the author of the Bible because it's his inerrant word, and there's no doubt about that, but I love the way that he used individuals and their personalities to actually write it down. We see here in verse 5 how Paul actually comes back to a thought that he left off in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. And it's almost as though 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 7, 4 is somewhat of an interruption in Paul's train of thought. He was relating the story then of why they had headed out to Macedonia in the first place, and then God interrupted him and had him write down all of that great stuff that we've been able to learn over the past few weeks. 
But now he's getting back to where he left off. In chapter 2, Paul had been speaking about arriving in Troas, and he was there to preach the gospel. And even though God had, it says, opened a door, given him an opportunity to do that, Paul said that he had no rest in his spirit because he had not come across Titus there. We understand more fully now why speaking to Titus was so important to Paul and that he was extremely concerned about the letter he had sent to the Corinthians. Paul says that when he arrived in Macedonia, he was exhausted. He was going through trials. It seemed as though on every side and he had no rest from trouble. He admits that he had fear and he needed comfort. And then we have those beautiful words, nevertheless, God. I love how many times in the Bible we're reminded of those but God moments. Whenever we are, wherever we are, and no matter what we're going through or how dark our circumstances seem, we can count on those words, but God. Who comforts the downcast, Paul says, comforted us with the coming of Titus. And it wasn't just being able to see Titus again, because I'm sure that whenever they were separated from fellow workers in Christ, they were worried about them, just simply because of what Christians had to go through at that point all the dangers and tribulations that they had to face. But it was even more because of the wonderful news that Titus was able to bring to Paul. It was the news that he had been longing to hear. Paul was able to finally hear that the Corinthians had not only received his letter of correction with understanding and obedience, but also that they still loved and trusted Paul as someone who the Lord had sent to them to instruct them in proper doctrine and understanding of growth in their walk with the Lord. Paul was then able to have that super abounding, jumping for joy, and and he was comforted. You know, are you in that spot maybe this morning where you need some comfort? Do you lack peace? Is your spirit downcast? God wants to interrupt those problems with his comfort. We can tend to lose our focus sometimes on the things of God and begin to look at our circumstances and the troubles that seemingly surround us. We need to get our eyes back on Jesus. The Bible says he is the author and finisher of our faith. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's true. You know, how many times do we spend so much time Worrying about what may happen, what's going to happen tomorrow, what might happen next year, oh, you know, where am I going to be, how this is going to, you know, I've heard it said that 90% of the things that we worry about never happen, you know, so it's a real waste of time, you know, we just need to just rely on what Jesus says and trust him and know that he is going to complete those things that he started in us and We just need to move forward in what he has for us. In verse 8, Paul goes on to say, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, 
I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that in the same epistle, that same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now we're getting to the part of this that is the real meat of this passage. You know, Paul is able to get to the heart of the struggle that he had been having within his spirit. He lets them know that for a while after he sent the letter to them, he had regretted having sent it. The reason for the regret was not that he had sent the letter, but he was worried about how the letter was to be received. But now that he knew that they had received it well, he was able to be relieved of the burden that he had carried on his shoulders. And uh, he, he was able to let them know the purpose and the desire that had caused him to write the letter in the first place. He knew his heart and the intent of the letter was not to condemn the Corinthians, but to correct a course of action that could have been incredibly destructive to the believers there. If you remember back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's what he's referring to. Paul said that there was a man that was having sex with his stepmother, his, his, his father's wife. You know, and, and that's what he was speaking to them about. It was, that letter was not, though he didn't write it regarding that specific sin. That was sin, absolutely. But the sin that he was confronting them about was the fact that the church was allowing it to go on without dealing with it. You see, the Corinthians were so proud of themselves for being so tolerant. You know, they were like, yeah, you can come to our church. Do whatever sin you want. It's okay, we don't judge. You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't being discerning. They weren't taking on that sin that was in the camp, in the church. And that's what Paul was really trying to get to the point of, is that they were allowing things to go on that God wanted them to deal with. Paul was so strong in regard to this that he said, not even the Gentiles would tolerate this type of sin. Like, and Gentiles, he's just referring to sinners. That's typically, you know, like even, even the world doesn't tolerate this kind of sin. What are you guys doing? What's the matter with you? You need to deal with this and repent yourselves of the sin of allowing it to go on in the church. So Paul was bold in his speech toward them, and he, was, he came down pretty hard on them. And, you know, sometimes you, you, know, you think, wow, you know, and Paul was a little worried about that. It was almost like he had a moment of, after he sent the letter, even though he knew that, you know, he wrote what was true, and he knew it followed God's word, and he was accurate and right in it, it's kind of like that moment after you send a text. You're like, ah, should I have said it that way? Maybe they won't understand what I meant. You know, when you write something, you can hear your voice in your own head, and it sounds all wonderful. But, you know, the person that's reading it hears the voice in his head, and it's like, eh, not, not so much. So, you know, sometimes you're not getting the answer that you're looking for there, and and it can cause things to go a little sideways. And I think that's where Paul was at. Is it, it was his humanness that was coming out. 
The, the Holy Spirit wrote the letter. We know that because it's inspired. We have 1 Corinthians because of it. But Paul in his humanness, after he gave it to Titus and said, here, take this, it was like, hmm, okay. So then he was worried, and he was worried for a long time because, you know, <laughs> Titus, he didn't see Titus again for quite a while. So Paul's concern for how his letter would be received is really understandable. But he knows that he says he knows the letter made the Corinthians sorrowful. But he was glad that it had made them sorrowful in the way that it caused them to repent. See, godly sorrow is a wonderful thing. When that sorrow causes us to understand that the things we have been doing are hurtful to our Lord and Savior and that we've grieved his spirit. When, when sorrow brings us to that point of repentance, again, that, that metanoia, that change of mind, that complete 180, that turnaround that sends us the other way, that says, I'm walking away from that sin. I'm leaving it behind me. I'm going forward in what Christ has for me to do. That's the part we need to do. That's the repentance part that God is then faithful to forgive us and, and cleanse us of our sins. That's the kind of sorrow that brings us to our knees and causes us to walk rightly with the Lord, the way that he would have us to walk, knowing that he wants only absolutely what's best for us and anything less falls short of his plan. Paul points out the difference between godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. The sorrow of the world that produces only death. And you know, we see an amazing example of that in the life of Judas. Judas definitely felt regret and remorse for what he had done, but it didn't produce in him the action of repentance. Judas did not suffer godly sorrow, merely remorse and shame, more or less for kind of getting caught in doing it. Um, you know, I, I find it so amazing. Jesus' spirit, when Judas came to him in the garden and kissed him, Jesus looked at him and said, Judas, really? This is how you're going to do this? This is how you betray your master? Like, think about it. Is this really what the direction you want to go? He, you know, he even mentioned it right then to Judas. But Judas had made up his mind, and, and he was just looking for that next thing. It's, it's interesting that Judas had been with Jesus for his entire ministry. He'd seen the wondrous works and heard all of the teachings, but he had never come to the point of actual repentance for his sinful life. He was just there kind of to see how it was going to go. And maybe if this didn't work out, he'd try something else down the road. Judas never really said yes to the Holy Spirit. He'd never truly chosen to believe the truth. Judas did feel remorse. He tried to return the money, though, as that might clear his conscience but there was no cleansing power in his actions. Rather than going to Jesus and asking for forgiveness and truly turning from his ways, Judas, when he couldn't clear his conscience, he went out and killed himself. He had the kind of sorrow of the world. He made the mistake of looking to himself for the cleansing. He thought that through some sort of penance, he could find peace that he was looking for. When that didn't work, he saw no hope, and ending his life was the only answer that he thought he had left. You know, if you're involved in 
a doctrine or a religion or something that puts the onus on the sinner to do the cleansing, it's not going to work. We can't do any amount of cleansing of ourselves. We can only come to Jesus with that heart of repentance, that that metanoia, that change of our mind, and allow him to do the cleansing. If it's something that says, oh, you just need to do this or that, and you'll be clean, you can go out. There's no, there's no change there. You can just keep, you can go back out and come back and do it again, and oh, I'll just sin this weekend, I'll get forgiven for it and come back. But that's not repentance, and that's not how God cleanses us. So Paul was joyful because of the fact that the believers in Corinth had experienced godly sorrow, and that gave them that repentant heart. They had seen that they were in error, and it caused them to want to get clean. Unlike Judas, they knew that this could not be accomplished by their own hand. Only the cleansing blood of the spotless Lamb of God could wash that sin out of their lives. And that true repentance on their part was the key to having that blood applied to their lives. As we come to the Lord in an attitude of true repentance, he will cleanse us. David says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God isn't looking for earthly sacrifices or things that you can do to appease him. He just wants you to be broken before him, to have that heart of repentance, and he will do that. He will not despise that. Ecclesiastes 7, 2-5 says, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise men than for men to hear the song of fools. You know, God doesn't want us walking around all sad-faced and, you know, just all sorrowful and, you know, everything's, oh, you know, so bad. He just wants us to know that if we have that sorrow that leads to repentance, then we can turn around and have that joy then that Paul had, that abounding joy that we have peace with God. We can then just go forward in what God has for us with that exuberant, bouncing off the wall joy that we can only receive from the act of God's cleansing in our lives. So he goes on in verse 11. He says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of of who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul was so happy. He lists so many different things about you know, what they had accomplished because of their repentant heart. 
You know, all these things that God actually accomplished in their lives because of that. You know, the word diligent here, um, it speaks in Greek of haste or enthusiasm. Paul's saying how wonderful it is that you've come with such quickness, such haste and eagerness and a desire to cleanse yourself and to come under the authority of God. He says, what indignation, what fear. It was like, what anger had they had at themselves for what they'd done? And then the reverential respect, fear that they had for God that caused them to come to that repentance. What a vehement desire or great longing. What zeal. The Greek word here for that is heat. They had a hot longing desire to be reconciled to Christ. And because of this, they had complete vindication. They were made clear or innocent before God in all things in this manner. They had done right. They had done what God demanded, and he bestowed that innocence upon them. He did not impute that to their, their um, account anymore. They were free. They were clear from it. So we see the heart of Paul. He says, we didn't do it for the one that had sinned or even for the one that was sinned against, but we did it so that you might all receive the forgiveness and come into right relationship with God. No longer an error that has made this. And so Paul was exceedingly joyful. And we see this in the final few verses of the chapter. You know, that's the thing about sin. Is as a Christian who sins... It's just, it's just kind of cutting down our, our relationship, our walk, that communication, that time that we get to spend with the Lord. It puts a barrier there, and it, and it has a wall between us. For, for a non-Christian, it's the thing that keeps him out of relationship with God. And God doesn't want either one of those things. He wants sin cleaned up in our lives so that as Christians we can have that communication with him. We can have that time together with the Lord with nothing standing between us. And as a non-Christian, he wants you to come to him so that you can be saved and have that forgiveness. In verses 13 to 16, we see, Therefore we've been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For if anything, I have boasted to him about you. I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Paul was just so glad that it not only had worked out the way he had hoped, but it worked out for the Corinthians, for their life, for their walk with the Lord. And it just gave him so much joy. And it was, he had sent Titus off with this letter and he had told Titus, these people are great. All these things that are going on in their lives. Yeah, they got some difficulties and I need you to take them this letter. But, you know, he, he says he boasted to Titus about the good things of the Corinthians. And then he was so happy to see that when he got back that Titus said, hey, yeah, everything you said about these guys was true. They really did. They accepted this. They repented. It's all good. Everything's happy down there, 
right? And so, you know, Paul could look forward to hopefully seeing them one time again. And he says he rejoiced that he has confidence in them in everything. And he was saying, I, I know that you guys are doing what you need to do, that you're going forward in the Lord. And he had confidence that they were going to continue that on. So we see throughout this whole chapter, Paul continue, Paul's joy continues to build until he can't contain himself. It's just an amazing thing. And he just loves it that, that Titus saw it. So let me just end today by saying that uh, if you're feeling convicted or confronted by the Holy Spirit because you know there's things in your life that need to be cleaned up, don't think that you can do it on your own. Don't leave here thinking, oh, well, you know what, I just need to clean up my life first and then I'll come to Christ. That'll never happen. We can't do it on our own. And worse yet, don't walk out of here thinking, well, I'm no worse than anybody else. I'm fine. I live a good life. It's all good. Join the psalmist David when he says in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Worship team, you want to come up? We need to come to the Lord with that godly sorrow and repent. And know and understand that forgiveness and peace that only God can give you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you'd like to do that, come on up after the service and there'll be people up front to pray with you. And if you're at home and, and you want to do it, just pray. Just reach out and call out to God. And then let us know about it. We'd love to be able to get you a Bible and get you some direction, get you going on that. So, you know, if, if you're feeling that tug of the Holy Spirit on your life, don't let it go by. Don't let this day pass. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Precious Father, we just thank you. We thank you and we praise you for your word in our lives. Your word that cuts to the heart. It cuts through bone and marrow. That sword of your spirit that just divides. Lord, I just pray that it would reach into our hearts and lives. And God, if there's things that we need to be repenting of, God, that we would just get on our knees before you. Lord, that we wouldn't let another minute pass. That we would come to you in repentance in that turning and changing of our mind. Lord, that you would cleanse us and make us whole and new. And that bond, that relationship would be restored with you. God, that we would walk forward, forgetting those things that are past and moving forward in the things that you have for us, Lord. God, I just pray that you would just touch us this morning by your word and by your Holy Spirit. We just thank you in Jesus' name.